Episode 19, Hebrews 11, Faith, and What in the World is Going on in America, Part B. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Okay, so going on in Hebrews 11, uh, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, again, we've talked about him before. Well, here we are back again. When God tested him, he offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Okay, well, I love this passage uh, because of a couple of things. But look at this word, embraced. He who had embraced the promises, that's Abraham, was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Okay, think about this. A lot of people will tell you, yeah, there's a promise that, you know, if we live righteously, faithfully today, that uh, we get to go to heaven later. Yeah, but Abraham embraced that. He didn't just give lip service to it. He actually bought into that. That's this hope that we've been talking about since verse 1, this expectation based on God's promises. It's a very rational thing. And I know a lot of people don't like rationality. They think it cramps their spiritual style. They think it's unworldly, unspiritual, from the devil even. They think something must be wrong with it. You're trying to control my mind. Uh, no, I'm trying to get you to teach, uh, to think like Jesus thought and to be responsible to reality in your beliefs. And here's a man, Abraham, who embraced the promises of God. You live righteous here, you get to go to the righteous place when you're done. That's the kind of man who would sacrifice his own son if God told him to do it. Did God tell him to do it? Yes, quite famously so. Did he do it? Yes, he did everything that he himself would need to do to make that happen, but God stopped him from going through with it. Was that a test? Oh boy, was it? You bet it was a test. And it was a test for Abraham to see, oh, I guess I really have embraced these promises. I guess I've really bought into this, right? And of course, it was a test for Isaac, who would come to see Wow, look at my dad. Look what a faithful man my dad was. 
And of course, it's a test for God. He gets to see what Abraham is made of, like God doesn't know this already. And so I think it's probably mostly a test for Abraham and, and of course, for us to be able to look back and see this man who was tested in this way and look what his answer was, because this guy embraced it. He didn't just try to tolerate it. Well, I guess I better do the right thing here because, you know, we're supposed to. <laughs> no. Hey, I'm going to do the right thing here because that's the right thing to do. And I embrace righteousness and I embrace the promise and the reward. And I embrace th that God himself is like this. I want to be like this myself. And also, I love this passage because Abraham did some reasoning. Yes, he knew that God had said, hey, your offspring's coming through Isaac. Oh, and yeah, and by the way, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. Does Abraham realize there's a little conflict there? You bet. But this was rational for Abraham because God told him the one thing, and then God told him the other thing. He had both. And so what does he do? He says, well, he wants me to kill my son, but God can even raise the dead. So that's really not, I guess, all that big a problem. Fine. I'm not going to stand on ceremony here and demand that all this makes sense because God told me the first thing and God told me the second thing. And he really told it to me. I'm not just assuming this or wishing that God had told me this or that. No, he told it to me. I was there. I saw it. I heard it. I know what he said. So I'm going to do what he said. Well, wow. I don't know many people like that today. I don't know many people who are like, look, I'm just going to do what the right thing is. It's never wrong to do the right thing. So I'm going to keep doing the right thing. And We'll see what happens, right? And if it kills me, okay. God can raise the dead. If he kills my son, okay. God can raise the dead. This was the kind of reasoning that Abraham used because he knew that Isaac was supposed to stay living long enough to be in the lineage there between Abraham and all of his other descendants. Or the ones in question, anyway. And so Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Figuratively speaking, that is. Did Isaac really die? No. But he was as good as dead had God not intervened. And woe to the people who would not have required God's intervention. The ones who would have said, oh no, I will not sacrifice my son. Going on, verse 20, by faith, Isaac, this is the same Isaac who did not get killed on the altar there. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. Why? Well, he had promises from God about these things, this, this holy city, the end of the story. You stay righteous, you do the right thing, and it's going to work out well. 
uh, verse 21, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on the top of his staff. 22, by faith, Joseph, when the end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. Well, what's that about? Have you ever read where no prophet should die outside of Jerusalem? Was Joseph a prophet? Hmm. A lot of people say, well, no, I'm not so sure. But they wanted to be in Jerusalem because something was going to happen there. There was a prophecy, and a lot, a lot of people are pretty high-minded about this one. They, they don't like to take it literally. I think this may be the ones that was intended literally. The Ezekiel 37, the dry bones prophecy. This is going to happen. And what you see in that story is real live human remains, or not live, but <laughs> obviously dead human remains, are reconstituted into living human bodies and spirit is put back in them. And uh, there they go. Now they're living. And some people say, oh, well, yeah, Jack, this is, uh, you know, metaphorical, obviously about the uh, reinvigoration of the nation of Israel after their times of unfaithfulness and so forth, that God would bring them back into uh, this new spiritual vigor. I'm like, yeah, maybe it's about that, but it doesn't say that's what it's about. In fact, it says that uh, th they would rise up out of their graves. Well, that's just figurative. Okay, well, how do you know that? I mean, don't you think that uh, if, if you're a futurist that someday Jesus comes back and he raises up all the dead uh, faithful and they all come out of their graves and they get a new body and then they go on to heaven in like an angel type body? Is, is that what you believe? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you believe that God can raise the dead. Oh, you bet I do. Okay, so when you read it in Ezekiel 37... Why do you assume that that would not be talking about a literal event? Well, I don't know. <laughs> well, yeah, you don't know. Okay, so then fast forward to Matthew 27, verse 51 through 53 or so, and you read about one of the greatest events packed into the tiniest little verses ever. And there's a mass resurrection of holy people coming up from their graves and my question is, who are those people? Because I think it's these people, and I think Joseph knew this was going to happen. And I think he wanted his bones back in Jerusalem so they'd be right there on the scene that day that he could be raised to see Jesus right after Jesus' resurrection. And so that, I know, is a huge can of worms I just opened. And there you go. <laughs> This is part of the stuff that you come across when you actually study out the scriptures rather than just the casual recreational reading that we're so often trained to do in the churches. There was a mass resurrection, resurrection event. I do have reason to believe, and I can show you the uh, evidence that I'm considering in another episode, that the Jews, the faithful ones, the ones who would belong in this chapter, were indeed resurrected, uh, after Jesus' resurrection on that same day. 
and that they raised up not only in Jerusalem, but everywhere to which they had been uh, strewn about the, uh, the world. So in, in all these uh, dispersions, the captivities and such where Jews are taken off, or the ones who are faithful, I think Jesus went and got them. And I think that this is Joseph here being concerned about where his bones are because when they all came alive again, he wanted to be uh, right there in the middle of it in Jerusalem where Jesus would be. He knew this. That's why he made a big deal. You've got to get my bones. He said, okay, we'll get your bones. And indeed they did. And they took him and buried him there. So how about that for a bombshell if you'd never uh, considered that before? Uh, verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child, and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Oh, I love this one for today. Lots of edicts uh, kings have put out where they have no authority, and I'm talking from the COVID mask thing to whatever else is going on, this change of uh, administration in the United States that may be imminent, and, uh, you know, we're going to get lots of new rules, new regulations, loss of freedom and so forth. Well, here you have Moses' parents. They weren't afraid of the king. Well, why not? Because they believed that at the end of the story, the righteous get to go be in this heavenly city with God. And we don't care what some human king says. And you know what? If he kills us, uh, that means we get to go sooner to Abram's bosom in Hades, or Sheol. Hades is the Greek word. Sheol is the, the Hebrew word. It's the underworld or the place of the dead. And we get to await Jesus there. And so would that upset them to be killed? Uh, no. Going to die anyway. And so they weren't afraid of the king's edict. But look how many people in America will be afraid to stand up and say no to their constitution-defying governor who says you may not peaceably assemble or you must wear a mask, even though we know that the virus passes right through a mask. And so it's, it's just for show. But look how many people are afraid. Well, I don't think those people are like these people that we're reading about here. Verse 24. Uh, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along the, with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. You see that theme here? These are people who are looking ahead to something. They're not living for the moment. They can navigate through the moment and say no to the junk that's put in front of them, saying, I've got something better than that. This is how I'm making my decisions. Uh, verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. See that again? His parents didn't fear. He didn't fear either. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. Moses had his eyes fixed on God. 
He had his mind fixed on God. He reflected on God. And you can find this theme throughout David in the Psalms. For instance, the reflecting on God, Psalm 119. Every verse is about the scriptures, every single one. And there are more verses in that Psalm than any other. And every single one is about the law or the scriptures, something in this vein about God. He was keeping his focus there, and I don't care what happens. Uh, 28, by faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. Even in time of basically spiritual battle warfare kind of stuff where humans are going to die tonight, Moses didn't shrink back from that. He didn't run from the fear. He could handle war or things as deadly as war, knowing that God had told him what's going to happen, what he needed to do, and Moses could just stay faithful and keep on the straight and narrow, not turn to the left or the right, uh, strength under control. This is that meekness, or I'm sorry, meekness is a bad word, this is what that is. You, you see where we're going here? These are people who can keep to the path, turn neither to the left nor to the right, but do what is right. And boy, how interesting that is as a political thing because you got people on the left disobeying the Constitution, you got people on the right disobeying the Constitution, and who can keep his head in the battle? Uh, it's the one who's looking forward to something greater, some greater principle. And I don't think the Constitution's perfect, mind you. I think it's way better than the de facto government that we have today and the de facto government we're about to have on January 20, which would be even worse uh, because these are lawless people. And maybe you have no idea what I'm talking about. And maybe I shouldn't even mention it as far as you're concerned. But, hey, that's the way I see it. Something to think about. If you think I've got it wrong, feel free to write me a line. Let me know how. So by faith he kept the Passover, verse 28. And then going on, verse 29. By faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Okay, you think about this. You know, the water stood up on either side of this uh, passage in the sea, a real live saltwater sea, and the Jews walked through it. How many people would say, I'm not going in there. Wouldn't that be natural? Wouldn't you expect a lot of people to say, oh, no, I'm not walking through. What if those waters come back down again? What if God lets go of those waters and they flow over us and kill us? I'm not going in there. Well, I think a lot of people today are so afraid to stand up, even to speak their mind on Facebook or something. Oh, no, I'm not, I would never say that. <laughs> Somebody might get upset with me. Well, you see, that's a different character from the kind of people here in this chapter. Verse 30, by, the walls, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. Of course, why did they march around for seven days? Well, they were told to march around for seven days. They didn't say, yeah, well, no, you know, bro, we prayed about it, and um, we just really feel we're being led to march around for oh, um, seven days. Yeah, <laughs> seven days. No, God told them. 
this was the rational response to the instructions they got. They did not make this up, as so many do today, who wish that God were telling them what to do. Well, what if God does not tell you what to do, you cannot make God tell you what to do. You need to be humble and realistic and say, you know, I really wish God would tell me what to do, but he has not told me, and it doesn't appear he's going to tell me, and he never has told me, and he hasn't told anybody I know either. So maybe I'm on my own here. Maybe this is a test, and I get to choose, and my choice will show whether I have bought in, whether I have embraced the promises of a second world, a heavenly Jerusalem, a holy city, in which I can live forever and ever in the sunlight of God and Jesus. Now, some people just don't want that. And so they come up with some different idea of faith and the promises of God that has to do with something else. And whatever that might be, we don't have time to get into all of that. And so uh, going on, um, verse 31, by faith, a prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Now, there's different kinds of judgment. Uh, by the worst one, one ends up forever dead or forever punished, and like spiritually dead, uh, like wiped out of existence, annihilated, or worse, uh, though the body is dead, the spirit lives on forever in the lake of fire with Satan and his buddies. Those are the bad ones. And then, of course, this other kind of dying is just the first death, the, the killing of the body. And those who were disobedient there at Jericho, uh, they would have, uh, they got killed in bodily, the first death, not the second. The second would come later, I suppose. That's up to God. He would be the judge of them. That's not up to me. I don't know. But Rahab would have been killed had she been disobedient like the others, but she was not. She was set apart by her behavior, by her choices. And look at the heroic choices she made in time of war, time of great stress and conflict and fear with lots of death all around her. And she said, I'm going to do the right thing because I honor Yahweh. And I'm going to help Yahweh's people get away. Verse 32. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets. And oh, that's a big one right there. David, especially, oh boy. And him being sort of a type of Jesus in a way. Uh, man, he could have written chapters about that. Uh, and Samuel and the prophets. Yeah, a bunch of prophets didn't get mentioned here and all their lives and what they saw and why they endured. Uh, he says, I don't have time to talk about that. And neither do we. Verse 33. Uh, these prophets who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, administered justice, gained what was promised, shut the mouth of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Okay, this should, if you know the Old Testament at all, this should be pinging you in at least a couple of stories. Like, what's this talking about? Look at people who were uh, conquering kingdoms. Okay, some of the kings in Israel did that, for example. Administered justice. 
think about that. I mean, this is more like, you know, a, a governor, a judge, this kind of thing, who's going to uh, handle society well and properly. These people had the, the courage to do that right, uh, steering their course straight ahead and not cheating to the left or the right. Uh, they gained what was promised. Uh, they shut the mouths of lions. They quenched the... What, who does that bring to mind? Daniel and the lion's den? Is that what we're supposed to think about here? Probably. Uh, 34, they quenched the fury of the flames. Who would that be? Uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And for the record, I did not say Abednego, <laughs> as so many do. Abednego. And uh, they were put in the fire furnace and it didn't work on them. Uh, escaped the edge of the sword. Uh, let's see, whose weakness turned into strength. That reminds me of Samson, of course, uh, perhaps others. And who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Think about David and uh, some of his mighty men, of course, uh, who seemed to have superhuman kinds of strength in times of battle. All these things. Think about, does this remind you of Bible stories? Yes. Is it supposed to? Yes. Is that what the writer here is doing on purpose? Yes. And then look in verse 35. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Notice this is women, plural. This is dead, plural. Tell me, when in the Bible story did women, plural, receive back their plural dead, having been raised to life again? This verse should stop the presses. Because the typical answer is, well, gee, I don't know. And somebody says, oh, well, what about Elijah and the widow there in the desert and the, the child and the, whatever the thing was? Well, that's one woman and one child. And was that child raised to life again? Well, what do you mean by that? Okay. But it's only one child. Is that what this is talking about? Well, if it were, why would it use the plural and not the singular? Well, it's got to be that, Jack, because we can't think of anything else even close. Well, I can. You're not going to find it in your Old Testament. And remember, I don't think the Bible should be split into Old and New Testament because it's one continuous story. And I don't really think the rules changed either. Not really. Not much once you get to Matthew. But I've already mentioned it here, Matthew 27, verse 51 through 53 or so, give or take a verse, uh, you'll find that a bunch of people raised up from the dead, and these were holy people, it says, not the unholy ones, these were the holy ones. So this gives you some idea where in Hades they would have come from. And they had been promised that they would be raised up and given a new spirit, that they would be returned to the land, that Israel would be restored, that they would have long life, that they would prosper, and so forth. And I think these people were resurrected into their own natural human bodies. This is not the glorified, angelic-type heavenly body. Nope. And they were raised up to live in that generation 
which is the first century generation. And they're the, and it says in your Bible that they were raised up. And this, again, if you don't know anything about the Old Testament, you're like, oh, how curious is that? Look, Billy, some people got raised up. Yeah, how many? And who were these people? Ah, well, now you got to go back and you got to look at all the Old Testament and say, well, what was prophesied about? What was promised? What would be a rational belief to have here based on what was actually promised? And now you're getting somewhere. Now you realize, hey, wait a minute. You know, when Jesus was born and Herod goes and has all those infants killed, hoping that Jesus is among them, and there was weeping in Ramah and Rachel lamenting her children. Remember that passage? That was a bunch of children, a great many. And here it talks about women having received back their dead, raised to life again. So these children get killed when Jesus is very young. And then when Jesus raises from the dead, they come back with same generation, mothers still living. And think about what that would have been like. Oh, but the Bible doesn't tell us about that, Jack. It must not have happened. Uh, Okay, well, what else is this talking about then? if not that. And suddenly, I hope you can see why connecting the dots, I think, is a very valuable thing. Now, have I got this wrong? Please give me more information. Please tell me some better hypothesis than the one I have. Because I've been thinking about this a long time, and I've been looking all through the Scriptures, looking for something, and here's a promise and it's funny, you know, this whole chapter is about believing promises and, and taking action on them because you have embraced the promises and you don't just uh, sort of uh, flirt with them, uh, uh, you know, to, to bring them up from time to time when you find it convenient. No, you live your life based on them. And so these people, Israel was promised that they would be restored to life again. And these people believed it. And these people saw it. These mothers of the murdered babies saw it happen. And the babies who were killed, even in Moses' day, among the faithful, not only the babies, but the mothers too, would have been raised up in Matthew 27. And they would have seen it too. It's hard to let it sink in just what a big deal that was, what a big day that was, what a big event that was, and it's covered by two or three verses in the New Testament, and that's it, sort of, kind of. But we're going to come back to that in just a few verses. So, verse 35, women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain some even better, an even better resurrection. See again? It's like, look, no, I don't want to be tortured by you. Thank you very much for asking. But if it's a choice between this or denying God, oh, you'd have to be foolish to think that I'm going to deny God with eternal consequences 
versus just trying to save myself from being tortured by you right now. It's a mindset, folks. It's a philosophy. This is something that was very real to these people. They believed it. They had a promise, promise from God. They heard it from God directly, some of them. Others had to take it by faith in the witness of those who told them about it, and they believed it too, and they wanted to believe it. And let me stop right here and say a thing. Perhaps I shouldn't, but I will anyway. A lot of people want to discuss the Bible. Is it true or not? And they debate and debate. And that's valuable. That's a great question. But I have another question about it. What kind of person would want the Bible to be true? What kind of person would want there to be a Yahweh who created humankind and angels and who is going to have a judgment and the wicked ones he will throw away like chaff and the holy ones he will keep for eternal life in his holy city, in his own presence. Who would want that to be true? That's a different kind of person. That's a person who would embrace these promises and live that way. And how do you know they've embraced the promises? Because they're living that way. Do you get it? How can you tell they haven't embraced the promises? Because they live worldly. They do dumb worldly junk, uh, seeking for the moment or trying to avoid the displeasure of the moment. And they will go on like Esau. We, in fact, we will get to that here shortly. Okay, so uh, let's see, where was I? Uh, verse 36, some faced jeers and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. Did you get that? This world in general in which these people lived was not worthy of people like them. They were marching to the beat of a different drummer to quote, is that Thoreau or is that the other guy? <laughs> Whose name I should remember. Perhaps I haven't been eating well. I don't know why I can't remember these, these basic things. Um, Non sequitur, by the way. <laughs> now my memory serves. Non sequitur is the logical argument that doesn't really follow from the premises. And so finally I remembered that when an hour later. Okay. And so uh, throw in Emerson. That's the other guy. And I don't remember which one marched, he said, to the beat of a different drummer. But these people going on in 38, they wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. Their lives here were not about comfort. They weren't about being the normal family, the average Joe. They were definitely out of place. Well, God put them here. Well, yeah. Did God know they'd be out of place? You bet. But God wanted them, wanted them to stand this test. Do you see what, where I'm getting this? And so they wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for 
us. Now, this is the writer talking about his generation in his day when he wrote this late in the first century. Since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Now, this word perfect, let's go back here to verse 39. These were all committed for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. And then at the end of 40, together with us, would they be made perfect? Okay, this is the idea of being made whole, being made complete. In other words, in the context, it's being made whole with regard to the promise having been made, to which they stayed faithfully embracing. They did not let go of the promise. They kept living this way righteously. They were commended for it, even though they didn't get the promise in their lifetime, and yet they would, uh, quote, together with us, end quote, written by a first century writer to his first century audience, they would be made complete, be made whole on that promise. Well, what's that talking about? We go into chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we, this is the audience of Hebrews in the first century, these are Jews, faithful Jews. Therefore, since we, faithful Jews, audience in the first century, are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. You see, we spent the last chapter talking about the race that had been marked out for these earlier people, and now there's a race marked out for us, and we're in the middle of it. It goes on, verse 2, uh, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And we could go on and on, but again, this is that theme again, that focus. All these people had this from Abel on in, in the stories told here. They understood we're being promised something, and we think God is faithful, and he is able to keep this promise and to bring it to fruition. He's able to bring us to eternity safely, even if we are mistreated here, even if we're lied about here, even if we're lied to here, even if our friends turn their backs on us, we still will keep doing the right thing because we know what is the right thing. God has made it very clear through the scriptures and almost in no case is there any dispute about what is the right way to treat somebody. It's not in dispute. Sure, some people want to dispute whether homosexuality is scriptural or unscriptural or not, whether God condemns it or not. Yeah, sure, there's debate about that. But let me ask you this. Is there anybody saying that God wants people to be murderers? Is there anybody saying that God wants people to lie, cheat, and steal? No. What about impatience? No. 
And so it is very clear from the scriptures what is righteous and what is unrighteous, even though some do dare to dispute a few matters, but most of it is very exceedingly clear. And people who embrace this promise of God, they are the ones who can get through the hard times. I'm not going to look it up. I don't know where it is. You can look it up if you want. But I want to bring your attention back to a passage I'd quoted in a recent episode. If you falter in times of trouble, how small is your strength? You see, God planned for people to be stronger than that and to not falter. I think right now, though I have been critical of his presidency because I am a strict constitutionalist, and he is not, he's a nationalist, I think now that Donald Trump is probably the loneliest man in America. I think he got cheated in this election, not that I wanted him to win, because I'm not a Republican and I'm not a Democrat either. Um, I don't think he's great for the country, but I think he's not a traitor. And I think that uh, he's been cheated Even if we don't like him as president, I think he's the rightful president for 2021 through 24. And these are very difficult times. And they're a lot more difficult than some of us have yet to realize. Some of us have our heads in the sand, as it were, and don't want to realize. And who knows? Maybe we'll see martial law. I don't know. I can find people to tell me either way. People to predict the future. But suppose it does get really nasty. Do you have the kind of faith that believes in God promising an afterlife, an eternal afterlife to the righteous? And if so, have you embraced that promise enough that that will be the guide for how you conduct yourselves during these times of political intrigue and uh, treachery? I'm going to flip over here and and, end this uh, discussion today. I'm going to go find Revelation 20. And I want to read you about that holy city. Oh, let's see. I'm going to use the New International Version again uh, here. Uh, I don't think it matters entirely much. But, um, and there's so much we could go into. But I just want to read about this holy city and and I'm sorry, I said 20, but I mean Revelation 21, about this new city. And it says this. um, Let's see. uh, Starting in Revelation 21, verse um, 6. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, this is Jesus. This is God. Same thing. But specifically, we would call this person Jesus speaking. And he goes on, to the thirsty, that is, to those who are wanting, who are in want, who are still desiring something, yearning for something, to the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious, not the losers, not the ones who fail the test, who don't stay faithful, who don't stay righteous in their actions, Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Is that what you want? 
If so, that's, you're the kind of people that, that he's talking about because the wrong people would not want this, or at least not as it really is. <laughs> the wrong people might lie to themselves about how God would accept their sin and, and say, look, I get to go, even though I don't want to talk about all my sin that God won't accept. But he goes on. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and get this, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And we've mentioned a lot of this language already today in this talk. So look at that right here in the last couple of chapters of the Revelation. He's got to throw something like this in there. Well, yeah, this is good news to the right people. To the wrong people, this is terrible news, and they want some version of heaven that lets them in, even though they still lived this way after claiming Jesus was their Lord. But uh, I'm going to read it again, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, cowardly, let's slow down right there, because these are times right now politically, if I'm right, they're going to require a great deal of courage to deal righteously with people. Otherwise, you'll be unrighteous because you're afraid. Funny, it's the first thing that comes on the list. So here we go. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, as if that weren't enough, (laughs) he goes on to talk about this holy city and how fabulous it is. Uh, and, and he goes on and, and he says, um, this city, let's see, we'll start, I don't know, verse 23. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. And oh boy, do I want to talk about that someday because that is packed with Old Testament meaning. For the glory of God gives it its light and the lamb is, it, the lamb is its lamp. Now, here we go. The nations will walk by its light. So you got this heavenly city, and you got the idea of people in the nations walking by its light. And I don't think this means that all the nations do what's right all the time. No, no, no. I think the manner of speaking here, and you can check me on this, you can study it and see if you disagree, that people in the nations, the light of all of this, the righteousness of God is known to the nations. They know right from wrong. Whether they live in it or not, hey, that's up to them. But that light is shining, and I believe it is shining through the Bible. I think we know these things because, hey, here's this whole story that we can't even master in a lifetime. Plenty of evidence. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of earth will bring their splendor into it. And I, boy, we could go for hours in this. I think the kings of the earth here is a reference to the good guys who finish their lives on earth and they walk into this holy city after that. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there shall be no night there. So there's not any time you're going to die and need to go there where it's not available. Oops, sorry, we're closed. Come back some other time when you die. You know, no, it's there for everybody. And so here we go. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. But, Here we go, verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Hmm. People's entrance into that city is dependent upon their behavior. That's the message here. 
That's not the message you'll find in a lot of the churches, but that's what it says here in the Bible that the churches claim to think is the Word of God. And then one more time in chapter 22. Let me click over there real quick. Uh, again, there is this kind of language here. In uh, verse uh, 5 again, there will be no more night. They will not need the lamp of a light to, or the light of the sun, for the Lord will give them light. Again, that's repeating. They will reign with him forever and ever. But look at this um, in verse 11. Now, this is talking about the imminence of judgment time. And some people think this has already happened. Some people think it's yet to happen. We'll talk about that later. But look what was supposed to happen whenever that time would be. Things were getting so imminently close that there comes a point in verse 11 where God says, and this is surprising language coming from God. It must be a special circumstance. He says, let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Now, where have you ever heard that in the Bible? This is new stuff. Normally, it's let the one who does wrong repent and cut it out, right? But that's not what he's saying here. Why? Oh, it, because the imminence of the judgment is so near that he's like, look, we've even quit with this message of repentance. Your time is practically done. So this is, this is why it's different language. So, verse 11, let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. Let the one who does right continue to, be, to do right. Yeah, duh. And let the holy person continue to be holy. So this is like right before the judgment was to come when these words would be uttered. And then he goes on, look, I'm coming soon and all this. Okay, so now you get down to verse 14 and you get, we, we get this theme one more time. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. Outside, though, outside the city, are the dogs, those who practice magical arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone, everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Now, at the risk of waxing too political today, what about a person who says, I pledge to um, protect and defend the Constitution against all enemies, domestic and foreign? And then who doesn't keep that pledge? Is that practicing falsehood? See, I think there's a lot of people in our Congress on both sides of the aisle who are just liars. Now, why are they lying? Oh, I don't know. Maybe they're under duress. Maybe they're being blackmailed. Maybe they're being bribed. Maybe there's some sort of extortion, strong arming going on. We'll kill your family if you don't do what we want. I don't know. None of that would surprise me. If you want to read about what I think about that stuff, go get my novel from Amazon, The Extraordinary Visit of Benjamin True. It goes into a great deal of this kind of thing. So here we have people, I believe, sitting in Congress where Probably nine out of ten of the Congress people would be in this camp, people who love and practice falsehood. I think it's a terrible situation. We could turn that around if we wanted, but there's a question of do we want to. And so three times here in these last two chapters, as if once weren't enough, 
we're told that the wicked people, they're just not going to make it into that city. And so you had to embrace the promise in your life and live out the promise by doing what's faithful. And even if it was at the 11th hour when you finally figured out, oops, I haven't been living faithfully. I need to be righteous and to do what's right before God and let God forgive me of my sins, my shortcomings, and let him invite me into this eternal city. That's what it's about, folks. It's about what kind of people are we and what kind of people do we want to be and what kind of people will we see to it that we become. And so many want to argue about original sin and we can't help but sin and all this kind of stuff. Well, if you think that, you must think God's kind of nuts for asking you to repent. So I think people have got it wrong in their original assessment of the state of mankind. We are not unable to change our minds and we are not unable to change our behavior. And some people will be so quick, oh, Jack, if you're going to have that, it's got to come through the power of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and my response to that is, okay, please go get you some of that power of that Holy Spirit and get her done. Would you please quit sitting around and tell me how much, well, you've got to teach us to rely on the power. Okay, well, go get it and be righteous. Now, I personally think a lot of people misread the passages about the Holy Spirit and they pile on to the Holy Spirit, this long list of duties by which it turns out the Holy Spirit becomes responsible for the things that God would hold the human himself responsible for. But hey, if I'm right or if I'm wrong, it doesn't matter if you can go get you some Holy Spirit and start living rightly. So if you think you need that, why don't you go get it rather than just arguing with me about how it's okay that you continually live in these kinds of practices, including falsehood. Do you have any idea how much false doctrine there is in the churches? And I mean dumb stuff, just dumb stuff, stuff a fifth grader could see through. But you say it anyway, because, well, this is just how we've always done it. And this came up again in my conversations with family over Christmas and this, this example is like everywhere. And pardon me, those of you who've heard it before, but it's just such a great one. First Corinthians 16 to the guy gets up for the, you know, to take up the collection in the church meeting there. And he says, uh, he reads this passage. He says, here's where God commands us to take up this collection every week. No, no, no. That is not what that means. A 20 minute study into that passage will reveal this is not what it means. It is abused again and again and again. If you want to use that passage, you need to do it the next time Paul is going to come by and gather your collection that you all kept at home until he got there so that he could take it to the, uh, to the famine sufferers in Judea. There you go. That's what that passage is about. You know this or should know this, and you don't or you don't care. This is falsehood. It is irresponsible. It is dishonest. It is irrational. It is indefensible. And 
If you're one of those who say, well, the Spirit helps us understand the Scriptures, then my question to you is, why then did the Spirit not help you understand that you are now in error and have been in error your whole life on that passage? If it's by the Spirit that you understand the Scriptures, then please go get you some more of that Spirit because you don't have enough. (laughs) So I'm sorry to get saucy with you if that's how you take this. I think this is sound reasoning. And when people push back, I like to ask them some questions that are very hard for them to answer from their faulty position. This is where people tend to get quiet on you really uh, quickly. They disappear or sometimes they turn the tables. Oh, well, you, well, I don't like your tone. Well, I just, I just didn't sense a lot of Jesus and what you were saying. They, they get all um, ethereal like this because they're looking for some way to validate the continuation of their practices, even though they cannot answer when they're asked to give account for what they believe and what they teach. If you don't like that kind of cheating, chances are very good that you feel quite uncomfortable in this world. I certainly do. My wife does. My son does. Our closer friends do. But we know a lot of people who claim Jesus who don't seem to be very much bothered by the ways of this world, at least not when they are the ones practicing them themselves. They do these things, lie, cheat, and steal, and do some of these other sins, and they don't think twice about it, but when somebody does it to them, of course, hey, he's lying, cheating, and stealing, and that's a sin. Well, yeah, okay, you're right about that. But what if you weren't a hypocrite? What if you thought hypocrisy was a sin and you had decided to cut that out because you had embraced the promises of God that that kind of person does not belong in this eternal city and that if you'll repent from that, you can live there. So, uh, I've got to cut this off somewhere. Now, I've been going at it quite a while. Obviously, I'm going to end up splitting this into two sessions. It's a lengthy discussion. But you know what? That's what it takes to discuss the Bible. I make no apologies for that. I'll cut it in half or whatever the right number is to make the uh, episodes where they're not much longer than an hour, uh, if that makes any sense. And um, we'll just see to it from there. But this is the kind of thing that I think we need to be discussing a lot. And if you notice, I did open up a lot of cans of worms today, things that uh, just demand to be studied out and examined, uh, investigated. And I hope you are the type who will say, okay, let's get at it. If you're like me, you don't have the time to do much of this. It is exceedingly frustrating. It's because scholarship, which means studying ship is an investment of time and the world is not built to give you tons of time without saying no to a bunch of other things and so it becomes a matter of prioritization i totally understand that if you were to say look 
Jack, here's a check for however many millions of dollars you need so that you can spend 40 hours a week studying, studying. Then I would say, thank you very much. And I still would be frustrated that 40 hours isn't enough to study all this out and to uh, lay it out in podcast format and all that. So this is part of the test that we're under. So what are you going to do with what you know already? You know, so that you can hold on to what you already have. To quote the language of one of the letters in the Revelation. What are you going to do to see to it that you keep pleasing God and don't sin? That you don't give in to cowardness? What is that a word? (laughs) To cowardliness? Perhaps that's a word. Uh, To cowardice. Oh, there we go. Uh, so what are you going to do to see that you don't uh, jump on one of the bandwagons where the two parties are trying to duke it out, uh, doing their best to tell the truth about the other side when that serves them well and to lie about them when telling the truth won't do? What are you going to do to avoid the hypocrisy? Well, your side's violating the Constitution. And, well, you know, when my side does it, it's for a good reason. How are you going to avoid that? Because you're in a sea, a chaotic sea, raging. We'll get into Genesis 1. It talks about this. Uh, Chaoskampf is the German word that scholars use to talk about this whole idea of this primordial chaotic sea, uh, the sea of rebellion and evil and wickedness and darkness. And we'll talk about that and why chapter 1 uses that kind of language which is not what you'd expect in a science book and how it's not a science book and how it's not talking about science and things like that. And there's so much yet to talk about. And I could go on forever, but um, hey, I'm so glad to be back after this holiday. I wanted to get something down before the too many weeks got by. And so here it is. This is today's podcast. I'm not sure what to say before, we, uh, before I check off here, uh, check out rather. But uh, I love talking about these things, examining them. And again, I'm open to being wrong about any of this. Uh, But I'd love to see the evidence. And it is very hard in this culture to find people who can come make a case. Hey, I considered your position. I heard these points. I take issue with that one. Here are three passages or 80 passages or one passage that seem to disagree with you? Or here's a question. Could you answer this and help me understand better? That is such a rare thing, friends, that uh, you will not find many who are equipped in this pandemic of irrationality and weak-mindedness that we live in. It is our culture to be shallow-minded, and double-minded, and that's a Bible term that we've discussed already. That's our culture. Well, are you going to live counterculture and go to a new world? Are you going to live and die here and end up in a lake of fire, either to be annihilated after some period of suffering that God says is sufficient for you, or even to be uh, complete in transgression and to get to be the eternal roommate of Satan? So I hope you've learned some things today. These are things that fascinate me. Uh, If I'm wrong about them, I would sure love to find out. 
I would hope rather than sitting back saying he's wrong about these things, that you would actually contact me and show me how I'm wrong about them. Uh, and even if I am, I hope I've got you to think through them for yourself, because that I think is the main goal of this podcast, getting you to do your own mental work rather than just to be a hearsay culture or a meme culture that repeats whatever somebody at church told you to think. So uh, I have great hope for this country and our culture that we could make things better here. I think that only through getting real with the Bible can Christians get better than we are as a lot. And there is so much yet to discover about these things and what I believe and why, what I've found in the writings that we basically don't read anymore. So um, this is what lies ahead, more of this kind of thing. Always I'm going to keep the thread of living in the image and likeness of God going. Always this power uh, under control and this idea of being honest, rational, and responsible. And so I hope you've enjoyed this so far. I will sign off now and hopefully be back before too many weeks go with the next episode.